from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our first scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 through 25. It can be found on page 654 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Listen now for a word from God. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Our second text is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, verses 5 through 19. Both of these texts are part of the lectionary, that three-year cycle of texts that helped set the pace of the liturgical life of the congregation. Page 80 in the New Testament portion of your pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along. When some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, Jesus said... As for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. They asked him, Teacher, when will this be? And what will be the sign that this is about to take place? And Jesus said, Beware that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name and say, I am he, and and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and plagues, and there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. 
But before all this occurs, they will arrest you and they will persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance for I will give you words and I'll give you a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open uh, this word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning uh, with a, a little bit of transparency. I recognize that as I share what I'm about to share, that it may land for some of you uh, in in maybe a a way that you would disagree with me. Uh, Perhaps some of you might meet what I'm about to say with with criticism or even judgment. And I just want to let you know before I share it, that's totally fine. Here it is. Not only am I okay with it, But I love to listen to Christmas music starting in November. (laughs) When the first of the month came, I I, I quickly programmed my satellite radio favorites to include the Hallmark Channel, which plays Christmas music 24-7 for two straight months. Katie and I were on a date uh, last a week in Buckhead and, and we were killing time before uh, our dinner and, and we strolled around Phipps Plaza and every store that we went into, I mean every store, had their decorations up and every store was playing holiday music and as we went into the atrium, there was Santa Claus himself <laughs> taking photos with some happy children and with some not so happy children. I've already selected my Christmas playlists on Spotify, and I've been listening to them. In fact, listen, listen to them as I was preparing this sermon. I'm not ashamed to admit it. Christmas music before Thanksgiving is totally okay in my book. I read a story a few days ago that came out of San Antonio. A couple named Claudia and Nick Simonis began decorating their home on the day after Halloween, which was November the 1st. They started decorating their home with Christmas ornamentation. And three days later, they received a cease and desist letter from their homeowners association (laughs) demanding that they take down their Christmas decorations until, quote, it was closer to the holidays. 
The Simonis family did admit that they were already in the Christmas spirit, but there was a more practical reason that they wanted to get a head start of putting up all the, the ornaments and the decorations around their house. You see, Claudia is pregnant with their third child, and the baby is due, get this, you can't make this up, December 25th. And in case the child would come a little bit early, they wanted to make sure that their first Christmas, the house would be decorated. So when the neighbors heard about this cease and desist letter, many in the neighborhood protested by putting up their Christmas decorations as a sign of solidarity and protest against the principalities and powers that we know in homeowners associations. Now, I know there are many of us in this space who have a different point of view or perhaps have a different timetable when it comes to putting up our Christmas decorations. When it comes to listening to Christmas music, there are probably many of us in this room who would side with the homeowners association in this case. I understand the logic and I don't want to critique it, right? With Halloween barely behind us and with Thanksgiving still 11 days out, some may find it appalling that so many people have demonstrated a mistimed merriment. I get it. I I used to have some hard and fast rules about all this. I used to be super rigid about it. Right? No Christmas trees, no lights, no wreaths, no mistletoe, and no Christmas music until, the, at least, until at least the first Sunday of Advent. And everything needs to come down the Sunday after Epiphany. I had standards, I had protocols, but to be honest, I've, I've actually softened over the last couple of years. And it's not because I am a soulless capitalist who is willing to secularize the sacred to make a quick buck, nor am I prone to sentimentality or the kind of nostalgia that's, that's often stirred by the familiar songs of the season. No, I have softened a bit because I know how desperate the world is for Christmas. I don't mean the pomp and the circumstance. I mean desperate for the message of Christmas. I know how desperate I am to believe, how desperate I am to hope, how desperate I am to hear songs of joy, to hear messages of of promise. In Luke 21, the text I read for us this morning, Jesus describes a situation that has become desperate or will become desperate for belief. It'll become desperate for hope. It'll become desperate for, for joy and promise. And, and as Chris alluded to last week, there, is a, there are a series of texts in the Old and the New Testament that we would classify as apocalyptic literature. And this text from Luke 21 fits squarely in that Type And apocalyptic literature uh, or apocalyptic sayings or warnings typically have this sort of doomsday or end of the world quality to them. And there's no difference here with the text that we read from Luke 21 from that type of writing, that type of speech, that type of saying. But, but I want to be clear about something. In, in the Jewish and the Christian story, apocalypse, while very dark, serves a different purpose than trying to scare somebody, than trying to provoke fear. Scholar Gilberto Ruiz explains that 
apocalyptic literature uses unsettling language. It uses unsettling imagery as a means to assure the faithful they should keep their trust in God, even when facing the most challenging of circumstances. And what Jesus details in Luke 21 with his solemn talk about persecution and famine and earthquakes and family betrayal and false prophets and and sacred sites like this sanctuary crumbling in on itself, political turmoil and, and, and plagues, it reminds all of us who dare to be confronted by the realism of this text that we need to hear some good news. That we long to hear some good news. We need God to show up in apocalypse. And we need God to speak a word of hope in the midst of our private and collective calamities. We need the incarnational presence of God to hold us fast in the good news that God holds us. That God takes on flesh and and dwells among us. And And the promise crystallizes, it comes into focus that that this God in the midst of apocalypse is still sovereign. This God is still Lord. Uh, The text says that God is sovereign over the hairs on my head or what's left of them. That God is sovereign over my life. That God is sovereign over my death. That God is sovereign over my resurrection from the dead and everlasting life. That God is Lord over all things seen and unseen. And friends, this sovereignty, this lordship in the midst of apocalypse is what gives us hope. It's what gives us hope. This message that we're starting to hear once again, this, this message that is slowly slowly creeping into our consciousness through satellite radio and and decorations and shopping malls. This message that we'll prepare for in just two short weeks with the start of Advent is a message that I want to hear all year long, not just in December, because apocalypse is not seasonal. Apocalypse is not seasonal. It's not predictable. We don't know how long it will last. We don't know when it will come. I know it's mid-November, but, but I say bring on this message of hope. I say bring on this message of the sovereignty of God because all of us, everyone within the sound of my voice, is living in apocalyptic times in some form or fashion. I just took a pencil and a sheet of paper this week and just started to write the names down of those in our congregation who I know right now in this moment are experiencing a personal or collective apocalypse, people who have cancer diagnosis, people who are mired in doubt, people who are deeply concerned with the direction of our nation, right or left. Some of us are people who have, who have just or are about to bury a loved one people who have yet to recover from injuries, people who are suffocating under financial debt, people who are looking for a job and just can't find one, people who are caring for loved ones who have dementia, people dealing with chronic illness, people who are sleeping out on the streets, sleeping on MARTA trains as it goes back and forth from the airport to Doraville, people who are just coming out of prison and and can't find a job because no one will hire them because they're a felon. People who are experiencing suicidal ideation. People who are subjected to sexism and racism in a regular way. 
people who are addicted, people who have unbalanced mental health, people who have unbalanced physical health, people who are so lonely, people who are overworked, who are overstressed, who are anxious, and who are exhausted. We are living in apocalyptic times. And so I say bring it on. I know it's mid-November. I know we're not even at Thanksgiving yet, but I say bring it on. I need to hear the message of Christmas, not the pomp and circumstance, but the message that God is with us and that God is for us and making a way for our salvation. I want to hear the words that the prophet Isaiah spoke, for I'm about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered. They won't be called to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I'm creating, for I'm about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I don't know about you, but I long for that new creation. I long for that word in the midst of our personal and collective apocalypse. I long for God to do a brand new thing. But I'm also aware, I'm also aware that, that hope takes time. Cultivating hope takes patience. It takes prayer. It takes waiting. I'm aware that, that we can't just skip through Advent and get to Christmas. I'm aware of that. I'm, I'm fully in acknowledgement that the season of Advent prepares us to receive this message in a fresh and new way. Jürgen Moltmann, a great theologian of the last century, once said that there is a wayfaring character of hope. There's a wayfaring character of hope, that, that hope is like a journey. Hope, hope moves in the world even as it moves in our hearts and in the life of our community. It, it is organic, it is active, it is not passive or static, but it, but it walks in the world like, like with bare feet. It walks in the world in, on the harder roads of life. It, it has a wayfaring character to it. And this wayfaring character is hard for many of us living in the West, hard for many of us living in the United States, hard for many of us who live in Atlanta. You know, I talked about the ways in which I would frame how I would go about the calendar and putting up decorations and when I would start listening to Christmas music. And I framed it with the first Sunday of Advent and and with Epiphany, but the world doesn't know about Advent. The world doesn't know about Epiphany. Uh, Phipps Plaza doesn't operate around those dates, and yet those dates are so important in the life of our faith and in our faith community. We realize that hope is a journey that we are on, and sometimes we have to wait for it. Sometimes we've got to trust in the midst of apocalypse when we're walking through the ruins of life, when the temple has been destroyed, and we've got to wait We've got to wait. Moltmann says that there are really two enemies of hope. He says the first enemy of hope is presumption. And it's the presumption, and maybe some of us carry this, that, that just as soon as the calendar date changes, as soon as the next day comes, everything's going to be okay. We just presume that everything is going to work its way out. And Moltmann says that that is an enemy of hope because that it doesn't acknowledge the reality of apocalypse. It doesn't say how hard it is. It doesn't talk about how dissonant and disorienting apocalypse actually is to name it as such. 
Instead of just sort of this humanistic optimism, oh, it's all just going to work out in the end to actually name the hardships. So many of us are living in our own personal apocalypse or collective apocalypse, and we refuse to name how hard it is. We refuse to speak about it. We refuse to talk about it. We refuse to get help for it. We just presume it's just all going to work itself out in some way. That's the first enemy of hope. Hope can't work when there is a presumption that it's just all going to work out on its own. Hope has to be born out of real, dire hopelessness. But on the other side of the equation, Moltmann says there's another enemy, and it's called despair. Despair is, is believing that that there won't be something new, that God won't show up, that, that God won't do something to save us, to heal us, to make a way for us through this apocalypse. Do you know the, 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 the Greek mythology around Sisyphus? Do you know this guy? Greek king, cruel king, gets punished by Zeus, and he's punished with this, with this horrible existence where he constantly pushes a boulder up a hill only to get to the top and the boulder rolls back down and then he goes back down and he pushes it back up to the top and Zeus mandates that this cycle, this repetition will be his existence for all eternity. Albert Camus, the 20th century philosopher said, that my friends is despair. And many of us feel like that's the life we're living. That's what apocalypse feels like for many of us. We're just rolling the, hill, the boulder up the hill and, and watching it roll back down and then we go back down and do it again and again and again. And despair is the belief that we will never, ever get out of that cycle. And some of us are meshed in that cycle right now. But the good news of Christmas, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he breaks that cycle through his life, death, and resurrection, through the gift of his grace. We have hope because he's walked the road of apocalypse. He's walked the road of the cross. And he's been raised from the dead, which gives us hope. So he seeks to defeat presumption. He seeks to defeat despair. And one of the principal ways that he does it, and I will close with this, one of the principal ways that he does it is in simpatico with the Christmas message itself, that he takes on flesh and dwells among us. That's the message I long for. And here's the good news, is that he is still doing that today in our midst. I'm going to ask you to do something that is going to feel super uncomfortable for a lot of you. But I want you to take a risk, and I, I, want you, I want you to receive this invitation and trust me on this, okay? When I did it at the 8 and 9, there were a lot of people who I could tell, I could see their faces were super uncomfortable with this. But it helps make my last point. What I want you to do, okay, is I want you to look at people around you. I don't mean look past them like I'm looking at the chair that Connie's sitting on or looking at the stained glass window. I want you to look them in the eye. You can't have empathy. You can't have love. You can't have relationship unless you look people in the face. I know some people are set, set, you know, it's sparse. Look around. I'm serious now. Do it. Look at somebody. Look at somebody. Look them in the eye. Look them in the eye. Here's my last point. Every one of us is on this road together. 
The gift of grace that comes in the Christian community is the gift of Christ's presence in one another. In the eyes that you just looked in, in the physical bodies that, that people inhabit, that's how God does God's work in the world. And friends, we're not alone. We're all on this road, this wayfaring journey of apocalypse, looking for hope, looking for the message. We're not alone. And so here's what I invite you to do. If you've been holding on to, if you've been holding on to your own personal apocalypse, to despair, or to even the presumption that just everything's going to work itself out and haven't been able to name the hardship, I'm invite you to tell somebody, tell a pastor, get together with one of us. Tell someone from this faith community, connect with someone because we need each other on this wayfaring journey on this road. It's a hard road to walk and the gift of Christ comes in us, that we walk it together, questing after this message that God is with us and for us in Jesus Christ, in apocalypse now and forevermore. Amen.